Early on a Wednesday morning at a small vineyard in southern Arizona, the vines are thirsty. Valves open, water flows, the soil darkens. The vines drink what they need, and no more. On the other side of the vineyard, as the heat of the day fades and cooler air drifts through the vines, moisture forms on the leaves. They don't like to be wet, so they ask the vineyard to do something about it. Switches click, current flows, fans over the vines begin to spin, the water evaporates. While all of this is going on, the vineyard operator is in Alaska on a cruise and the vineyard manager is asleep knowing that the plants are in good hands. This may sound like something out of a Ray Bradbury novel, but I assure you, it's real. In July 2017, we were up on a uh, cruise in an exploratory boat, so it was a very small boat. Every time we went into port and we were next to some of these other ships, we felt like dinghies. But uh, we were getting ready to go into Zodiacs. Uh, We were in College Bay or College Fjord, uh, and the glacier that was about a half a mile away from us was the Harvard Glacier, um, and it was calving. So um, we were getting in the the Zodiacs to kind of navigate through all these fresh icebergs that had fallen in the fjord and get a little closer. But before we did, um, we hopped on our computer, you know, got on our VPN and hooked into Deep Deep Sky Vineyard all the way back in Wilcox, Arizona, and we're monitoring water levels and setting irrigations. Kim and Phil Asmundson are the owners and operators of Deep Sky Vineyard. It's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there is a good way to describe the vineyard's location. Tucson is 80 miles to the west, Phoenix 120 miles beyond Tucson. An aerial view from Google Earth looks like a piece of old, dried-out cowhide. Yet from that cowhide, Phil and Kim produce world-class fruit that becomes world-class wine. One of the vineyards is located in Wilcox, Arizona, uh, which is down in the southeast corner of the state. The other is in an area called Sonoida Elgin, uh, which is pretty much due south of Tucson. Both both uh, properties are probably 30, 40 miles from the uh, uh, Mexican border, which, which to some people doesn't make a lot of sense, but you need to remember that the southern part of Arizona is quite high. One vineyard in Wilcox is at 4,200 feet, and the vineyard in Sonoida is at 5,000 feet. Um, so good growing conditions, but the challenge for us has always been that we don't live near either one of those locations. We live in Marana, Arizona, uh, which is a good solid two-hour drive to Wilcox and about an hour and 20-minute drive to Sonoida. Um, So that's probably the biggest challenge we've had early on in our adventure into the wine business. There's an emerging alphabet soup of technologies that's redefining the relationship that people have with technology in their everyday lives. You've probably heard of them. We've talked about some of them already on this podcast. They have names like Internet of Things, Big Data, Analytics, Cloud, Machine-to-Machine Communications, Artificial Intelligence. The list is long. What's important, though, aren't the individual technologies. It's the ecosystems that they form themselves into that matter. In fact, the ecosystem that's made up of the six technologies I just listed is what I want to focus on in this particular podcast. And by the way, this is the first in a series of three podcasts that look at this ecosystem. The second program will focus on a very specific challenge, the use of technology to safeguard one of our most important resources. The third program will address some of the privacy, confidentiality, and security considerations of a completely wired world. So thanks in advance for coming along on what will be a very interesting journey. Let's start with the Internet of Things. Actually, let's start with a thing. What is that? Well, to answer that question, let's look at everyday human behavior. 
All day long, from the time people get up in the morning until they go to bed, and actually even while they're sleeping, people do all kinds of things, some of them deliberate and conscious, others not so much. The alarm on their phone wakes them up at a specific time, and while they're getting ready for work or to take the kids to school, they stream music or news from their favorite channels. As they back out of the driveway, they open the Starbucks app and order their favorite wake-me-up drink so that it'll be ready when they pull up to the drive-thru. They drop off the kids, go to work, badge into the building, go to their desks, and kick off their day. For some of them, work means visiting clients. So they hop in their cars and drive from location to location to location, all the while making phone calls and streaming internet content. While all of this is going on, countless other things are happening around them on a macro level. The water in a stock tank in the middle of a prairie outside of town, miles from the home of the rancher that grazes cattle there, drops below a certain level, and a signal is sent automatically to the pump to replenish the tank and to the rancher's phone to notify him of the low water level. On the way to check on the tank, the rancher's truck detects that the flow through its fuel pump has become erratic, and it sends a message with diagnostic data to the dealer to trigger a repair call from the dealer to the rancher. On the outskirts of town, at the local water treatment facility, alarms go off to notify public health officials that a flu outbreak is growing in one specific neighborhood in the city, but it can still be contained if they move quickly. Sensors installed in sewer pipes deep underground have detected high levels of influenza virus, but have also determined precisely where it's coming from so that first responders can get medication to that area of the city as fast as possible. In a small neighborhood just outside the city, an elderly woman gets out of her bed at 8 in the morning and walks down the hall to the kitchen to take her medications. The carpet in the hallway detects her passage, and the pill bottle recognizes that it has been opened and that a pill has been removed. Downtown, patients in hospitals are monitored by sensors attached to their bodies, measuring pulse rate, oxygenation and glucose levels, respiration rate, and other vitals. Streetlights outside the hospital respond to the setting sun, turning on at precisely the right moment to ensure public safety and conserve power. When the day ends and dark settles over the city, the streetlights stay off until they detect motion nearby from a passing pedestrian, at which point they light up. Down the street, a digital billboard recognizes the cell phone of a passing musician and instantaneously posts a message that advertises an upcoming concert by a group that the person loves. In an industrial part of town, in the deep shadows behind a dark warehouse, two police cars are parked. They're there because data analytics have identified a pattern in the break-ins and robberies that have been happening in the last few weeks, and the system has told them that with 100% certainty, there will be a break-in within 100 feet of this warehouse tonight between 11 p.m. and midnight. So, they wait. This may sound like science fiction, as I said earlier, very Ray Bradbury-ish, but everything I just described is happening right now. The things in the Internet of Things are sensors that surround us and that respond to everything we do throughout the day. That exercise band on your wrist, your smartphone, the tracking devices in your car, your music player, anything that's connected to the web is a thing in the Internet of Things, and there are billions of them. Those things generate data all day long in response to human activity, or in many cases, activity that has nothing to do with humans, like the dropping water level in the stock tank, or a complex process in a refinery somewhere. 
For the most part, that data makes its way to a data center where sophisticated software analyzes it for relevant information and then sends the results off to a decision maker or an executive or a salesperson or a marketing organization or in the case of the vines at Deep Sky Vineyard, a small computer for action. What kind of action? Well, turn on the pump, fill the tank, and notify the rancher. Analyze the fuel pump data and tell the rancher that a service call would be a good idea. Dispatch flu medication to a specific downtown neighborhood to stop the spread of the disease before it gets out of hand. Don't bother to call the doctor because that elderly woman did get out of bed, did go to the kitchen, and did take her medication. Do analyze and respond to that patient health information in the hospital, and since you haven't detected motion for a full minute, turn off that street light to save power and preserve the night sky. Create a police presence right here, right now. So a thing is just a sensor that responds to its environment and then generates data to indicate that the environment has changed somehow. And because the sensors are all connected to the Internet, we call that ecosystem the Internet of Things because those things have to be connected if they're going to create value. I mean, think about it. All the data that these things spew into the environment has zero value if it can't be collected and analyzed. But when it is analyzed, holy cow, that's when the magic happens. You know, probably the biggest challenge for both Kim and I when we got started in in this was neither one of us has any background in agriculture, which, um, you know, with hindsight was a pretty big obstacle we had to overcome. Um, but there were a lot of other ones that really, you know, reared their ugly head very early on. One of it was the distance from the vineyard. Uh, it was, uh, you know, not a short drive to get there, about four hours round trip. Um, and uh, labor was hard to find in Wilcox, Arizona, where we first got started. I ended up firing the first three vineyard managers I had because they were kind of no-shows. Um, I was two hours away, and so I didn't really know what was going on. And then we didn't know what was going on with the water. They would tell me they were watering, and then I'd get down there, and the dirt would be dry. So they weren't following what we wanted, and we had no insight into what was actually happening. This family of technology works well for the management and understanding of vast, complex systems that have lots of moving parts. The scenarios I described earlier, the water tank, the smart streetlight, the wonky fuel pump, those are fairly simple applications. But think about bigger, gnarlier environments. Think about the vast complexity of a refinery or a warehouse or a manufacturing plant or a factory or a hospital or, for that matter, Kim and Phil's vineyard. I mean, here's the deal. Any environment that consists of a large number of interdependent processes with lots of moving parts that cost a lot of money to put together is what this technology family is built for. But please keep one thing in mind. No humans are involved in these actions. We're talking about devices talking to other devices, otherwise known as machine-to-machine communications. People don't join the dance until some kind of human action is required. Now, there's another thing going on here that's kind of interesting. All of this data comes from a wide range of sensor types using different kinds of Internet connections doing wildly different things. IoT for me means the deployment of efficient, intelligent digital systems on your terms, whether that be peer-to-peer or client-server, whether that computation reside in a watch or on a microcontroller or on a server or in a cloud, on a gateway somewhere. That's IoT to us. That's Doug Stanley, the founder and CEO of a startup near Denver called Neo Labs. 
Neo has figured out how to solve the most vexing problems that new technologies face, interoperability and ease of use. So when we created Neo, we, we frankly we frankly uncovered another massive problem, which is back to interoperability, but communications. You know, it's easy to say, oh, standards will solve this. Today, we use things like Bluetooth, we use Wi-Fi, we use cellular, we use multi-modes of cellular, we use, you know, fractional SIMs, we use wired, we use wireless. There's multi-mode communications. And oh, by the way, then we have all sorts of different standards for things like wired, right? So that kind of hit us in the face hard when we went out and started connecting factories and farms. None of this, none of this networking, none of this communications capability is interoperable. Let me add some context here. There's an old joke in the technology world that says that the nice thing about standards is that there are so many to choose from. I mean, just think about all the various ways we send data back and forth. We use the telephone network, the internet, we use Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, we use cellular and so on. The problem is that these all rely on different standards and those standards don't always play well together. The cornerstone of the vision for NEO is to be that tool that seamlessly delivers interoperability. Now, where we've gotten to achieve that, you know, we've gone into design thinking, uh, leaned heavily into, you know, into thinking of, you know, how humans, back again, interact. We've done a lot of studying on perfect systems, and what we found is we needed to break a couple of the, I call it the, you know, the, the technology direction that was limiting interoperability. So number one was client-server. The internet was designed to be peer-to-peer. Frankly, we screwed it up. We broke it and we made it client-server. So we said, what if as a solution architect, I could in fact have a software tool that enabled you to build peer-to-peer relationships, thing-to-thing, and thing-to-things, and then eventually into some sort of hierarchy client-server, and do that on a very, on an adaptable basis literally on the user's terms. So that was the first real premise. And then we found, again, that the, that to deliver these seamless experiences, we had to continue to break some things. And one was just the notion of computation. What's really important here is the magnitude of this technology. And today, there are about 11 billion connected devices in the world, give or take a few. But depending which report you read, there will be anywhere from 20 to 50 billion of them by the end of 2020. That's a pretty big number, especially when you consider that there are about seven and a half billion people on the planet. The planet is pretty connected today, and it's highly censored. That's Doug again. Now, he doesn't mean censored as in R-rated. He means a planet that is covered, encrusted with censors. In fact, we're all walking around with supercomputers in our pocket. I think the latest number is seven point something billion of them on our planet that are supercomputers that are high-capacity uh, high sensory devices. In fact, I learned recently that Google knows more about the movement of humans and the movement of cars than anybody on the planet. Why? Because they take a mobile phone with GPS, and you're either walking with it or you're riding in a car with it. So this is a highly censored um, uh, planet uh, using telemetry systems, storing all sorts of data, um, what, what people can't do with that data is break it out of its proprietary nature and incorporate it into a system intelligence on their own terms. Nothing works in isolation. We wanted to deliver beyond 
the user's imagination and on their terms, seamless interoperability. And that brings us back to my point about the ecosystem of all of these technologies working together being so important. What's also important is something that I've believed for a very long time, that technology in and of itself has very little value beyond the excitement of academic achievement. But when it's applied to life, to the so-called human condition, to business, to society, amazing things happen. Internet of Things, this concept of encrusting complex processes with sensors that generate data that can then be analyzed to create insight, that's really where the magic happens. Now, we've talked about some of the remarkable applications that IoT makes possible. The driving force behind the technology were some of the issues we were having with our people um, and uh, knowing, having visibility into a vineyard, that was a two-hour drive away. And uh, so we, we really realized that we needed to have um, kind of a access from anywhere as kind of a first cornerstone reason for putting in any technology or whatever that technology might be. But it quickly morphed as we realized that uh, uh, it was more than just visibility. It was actually understanding what was happening with our equipment, understanding uh, what was the water uh, content in the ground, understanding the temperature and solar index um, and starting to build from there uh, a platform that we could uh, uh, develop that would let us be virtual farmers, if you will, um, because we had so many other demands on our time as we were growing into these other businesses of winemaking and retailing. So, important points so far. A vast constellation of sensors, billions of them, covers the planet. They're pretty simple devices that do one thing and one thing only. In response to a change in the environment, they spew data. That's it. That's all they do. That raw data then makes its way via some kind of a wired or wireless network connection to a computer where it's analyzed. The results of the analysis are then provided to one or more humans to act on or increasingly to another machine for some kind of action. This is autonomous machine-to-machine communication. No human in the loop. It's powerful and it's real and it's here. The role of the farmer is still really important. Wool talked, well, I'll talk to our vineyard manager every day or every other day. And often, um, you know, I'll say, hey, you know, we're looking at zone eight. And to us, it looks really low. Go look at it um, and let us see, let us know what you see in the field. And other times, he'll call me and say, Kim, zone eight, the plants are really struggling. What do you see? So we work hand in hand together, and both parts are pretty important. This is not about replacing our farm workers. This is this is about empowering them. Um, you know, there's no question that uh, our vineyard manager. I mean, literally, he can look at 12 numbers, and that would be the percent of field capacity. Um, and he can look at those and instantly know what zone or two zones or three zones he has to go out and check right away. Now, the beauty of our system also is it's very flexible. We can decide what depth to calculate that percent of field capacity at. If there's a zone that all of a sudden, because we, we, we amend the soil, starts drinking a lot at 24, with, with, the, with the click of a button, 24-inch soil moisture readings are now included in that percent of field capacity. So, uh, you know, literally... In two minutes, a vineyard manager can get a rapid assessment of, okay, these are the places i got to go look. And, and they're armed already with this information. They can take a tablet with them in the field to record things. Um, that's a feature we haven't used that much because we haven't had a field manager who got savvy enough on the technology. But I'm very confident with our, 
with our um, uh, vineyard manager that 2019 will be his year to start really doing a lot more of that. And the value of it is incredible. I mean, we tend to our vines before there's a problem. And, you know, before everything was always reactionary. Now there's so much more predictability that um, it actually makes farming fun, quite frankly. As sophisticated as this technology is, it's nowhere near baked. The model I just described, for example, requires that the data make its way to the cloud for analysis before any action can be taken. But what if it didn't? What if the analysis, the computing, could be done right where the data is collected in real time so that a much faster decision could be made without the need for a data center, the so-called cloud? Neo is, number one, enables you to put computation where you need it. Uh, the same Neo binary that runs in the cloud runs on a chip, runs in a browser, runs on a mobile phone, runs on a wearable. So if I can put the computation where it needs to be, then, frankly, that's, that's, that's a big part of the lift, right? So, so NEO really is an attempt to solve the challenges of interoperability. In our second podcast in this three-part series, we're going to talk about that very thing and about a specific application for this suite of technologies, making sure that the planet has enough fresh water. I want to thank Kim and Phil Asmundson of Deep Sky Vineyard and Doug Stanley of Neo Labs for helping us see the human side of a new technology as it makes its way into our lives. You'll hear from them again in the next couple of podcasts. This is a game changer. These innovations really are changing the world. So thanks for dropping by and for being curious. We'll see you in the next episode. And please, if you enjoyed this program, if it made you just a little bit curious, please go over to iTunes and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it very much. I'm Steve Shepard for the Natural Curiosity Project. Thanks for listening.